Well, when we think about our study of all these different things, we're sort of in the end time things. This little section kind of ends it all. And we're looking at the idea of judgment. So when we think of judgment, most of the time you say, oh, judgment, oh, that sounds really bad. You know, don't judge somebody or what judgments are there in the Bible. But we realize that there are a number of judgments in the Bible. And as we start, let's think about, let's think about, let me get caught up here. Let's think about, uh, let's think about God. How do you view God? I mean, because when you say the word judgment, you think, oh, God, yeah, God's a, a judge. And I know people that, that actually think that God is just like, a, he, he's, he's mean. And he's waiting for them to mess up somehow and just to, to get it. So how do we view God? Sometimes people view God as the big old man. He's like the big granddaddy. He's kind of in the sky, and he's sitting in a rocking chair, and he's real nice. And if you just talk to him, he'll just give you, you know, whatever, and he's fine. And then some people think that God is the supplier, that all you have to do is ask. In fact, if you get the formula right, if you get the formula right, God is obligated to give you whatever you ask. I've heard people say it's called the name it and claim it. You just you have to name it and claim it, and then God's obligated to give it to you. That's how some people look at God. Some people look at God as just the tyrant. He's, he's really powerful. He controls all things. We got uh, junior camp coming up pretty soon, and we're we're looking at at junior camp the attributes of God. That's what it's going to be about. And I'm putting together ten different attributes. And when you think about it, you think about how uh, one of the attributes of God is He's omnipotent. He's all powerful. And when you see that, you go, "All oh, powerful. He's He's more powerful than you can even imagine." Well, some people see God as powerful, but that He's bad. He's a tyrant. He's, he's looking to, to, re, to really get you. And so when you think of the word judgment, sometimes when we think of judgment, we think of something bad. We think of punishment, you know, that God's going to punish you because of the things that you've done and all those kind of things. But, but th- that's not really the way it is when we think of judgment. In fact, th- as we look at the judgments in the Bible, there are some judgments are good. And they're actually for believers. And then there's some, there's some that's bad. When I say bad, uh, we'll see what happens at those. Uh, one of the things that most people don't grasp is in certain judgments, and a lot of people think judgments, you stand before God and he's going to decide certain things. Some of them have nothing to do with sin at all. In fact, almost everything deals with, with works uh, and good works, and we'll talk more about that in a minute. So when we think of judgment, we think of man and sin and rewards and works and all of those kind of things. And so there's, there's a lot of good things. Let me give you there that, that uh, you, I think you can go to the, I don't know if your book's the same as mine, the top of the next page. There are five major judgments that we're going to talk about tonight. I'm going to give you all five right now, and then we'll go through it. The first one is what I call the judgment of the cross. Let me, I'm going to draw something up real quickly here. This, you know, is the outline. This is Jesus dying on the cross and was rising again. This is the church age. This, of course, is the rapture, followed by the seven years of the tribulation. This is the second coming of Christ. This is Christ setting up the kingdom. And this is the last thing called the great white throne. And you'll probably will we see in that one. But this is sort of the timeline. And when we start with the first one, we talk the judgment of the cross. That's that one right there. Okay, so we're going to see that. It deals with both believers and unbelievers because it's dealing with the judgment for sin. We'll talk about that. There's a second one called the judgment in the Christian life. And this is us in our Christian life. This is the number two one. This is as we go through Christian life what, what do we judge? What are we talking about? And we'll see it as we go through it. It's dealing with sin and the life of the believer. The third one is called the judgment seat of Christ, which is the rewards. A lot of people put the judgment, excuse me, judgment seat of Christ after the rapture, and the believers will be at the judgment seat of Christ after the rapture. So some, some most people put 
the judgment seat of Christ there. The fourth one that we're going to see is the judgment of the nations. That's both believers and unbelievers, and it's at the end of the tribulation when Jesus comes back to set up the kingdom. This is the judgment of the nations. We'll see that as we look at that and how that ties together. And then the last one is called the great white throne judgment. That's the number five right there. So we have the five judgments, that, and this is basically how they fit in the timeline. We'll see them in a little bit more detail, of course, as we go through it. But uh, those are, I think there are five judgments there. There may be other things we could say, oh, this is a judgment or this is this. But these are the five key things that we see when we think about judgments in the Bible. So we'll see how they fit together. Let's start. And the first one, we're going to have a lot more to it than, than some of the others. But the first one is called the judgment of the cross. And it deals with Jesus Christ and his death on the cross. He is judged and he is paying, paying for sin. That's why... That's what the judgment is. He's taking the sin of mankind upon himself, being judged for the sin. First Corinthians talks about the message of the cross. And this judgment deals with both believers and unbelievers because when Jesus died on the cross, for whose sin did he die for? Every person. That means all believers and Unbelievers, so he paid for the sins of the entire world. We know that Romans 3.23 says we've all sinned and come short of the glory of God. 6.23 says the wages of sin is death. And so we know that we, we, we're sinners. Romans 3.10, there's none righteous, no, not one. Isaiah 53.6 says all we like sheep have gone astray. So all of those things. And so when we think about this, sin is judged because God can't overlook sin. You know, it, it would be funny. I've, I remember when I, after I trusted Christ when I was in college, I was talking to somebody one time, and they were saying something. Like, why don't God just, because he loves people, why don't God just overlook sin? Why don't he just say, I'm not going to count it? Why can't God overlook sin? Huh? Because he's, his character. He says, he's already made a statement, the wages of sin is death, and the soul that sin shall die. So God can't overlook sin. So he's got to deal with sin. And how he deals with sin is to pay for sin for mankind. I want let me before I get into these things, I want you to realize this, that every human being is a sinner and we've all sinned and come short of the glory of God. And when Jesus died on the cross, he took all sin of all people, past, present, and future. Every sin of every person he paid for the penalty of sin. Because the wages of sin is what? death and Jesus Christ died. So here's what we're going to talk about. And as we look at that, there's three aspects. We're going to look at first, why this judgment? Okay. Why this judgment? Three key aspects. Did, did somebody say something? I'm sorry. I thought I heard somebody say, okay. The first one is why this judgment? Why the judgment of Christ on the cross? The second one is what was judged? Because we're going to find out what happened there. And then the third one is who was judged? And that may surprise you a little bit as we look at that. So this is what we're going to look at. Why the judgment? What was judged? Who was judged? So let's start with why the judgment? Why did God judge Christ on the cross? Well, here's what we find out. Why the judgment? Because of man's sin. There are two aspects there. Why the judgment? One is because of man's sin. Man is a sinner. We've all sinned. We've owed God death. Wages of sin is death. So there has to be death. 
There has to be death. That's why Jesus Christ had to die, because of man's sin. And we mentioned it a while ago. We've all sinned and come short of the glory of God. The wages of sin is death. The soul that sins shall die. There's none righteous, no, not one. There's not one that seeks after God. We've all fallen short of God's glory. The second aspect of the, and of course, God cannot overlook sin. We just mentioned that a while ago. Why can't he overlook sin? Because he's righteous and just, and he can't say, well, we're not going to look at it. The second thing is, why this judgment? Because of God's great love for us. If God didn't love us, he wouldn't have sent his son, Jesus Christ, to pay for the sins of mankind. So think about this. God so loved the world. What, what, when we think about it, God loved us. First John 4, 10. And this is love. Not that we love God, but God loved us and sent his son to be the what? The satisfactory payment for our sins. Romans 5, 8. God demonstrates his love toward us that while we're yet sinners, Christ died for us. So because of God's great love, that not only because of the wages of sin is death, but because of God's great love. When we think about the love of God, God so loved the world. I, I think that's probably the greatest verse. You know, we always talk about the greatest verse in the Bible is John three sixteen. But God so loved the world, that's us, that he gave his son Jesus, what? He gave him to die on the cross and pay for sin. And, and whoever believes will never perish but have eternal life. So why was this judgment? Is because God loved us and also because of sin. So he couldn't overlook it. He couldn't say, I love them, so I'm going to overlook it because he's righteous and just. He couldn't say, well, man, sin, I don't love them. I'm just going to let them all be separated forever. No, because God loves us, and because of the fact of sin, he dealt with this by that judgment, and it's very, very powerful. God chose to by the way when people say things like why would god love mankind you know what the answer is we have no idea because if we're not that lovable you know when they're fallen and god chose to love us god said i so love the world and that's because he choose chose to do that okay that takes care of the first one here's so here's the second big question what was judged now, this may surprise you as we look at it if you haven't seen this before. But what was judged on the cross? Two things. Sin was judged on the cross for the believer and unbeliever. Sin was judged. Now, I want to show you something. And when we say sin, we're talking about the whole aspect of sin. And I'm, I'm, I don't want to erase this. I may have to and then come back and draw it again because I want you to see something. There are two aspects there. There are two aspects of sin being judged. There's sin as an act and sin as a nature. Both were judged on the cross. I want you to think about that. Sin as an act, in other words, actions that were wrong were judged on the cross, were dealt with on the cross, and then sin as a nature, the capacity to sin, was also dealt with. Let's start with sin as an act, okay? Did everybody got it? Everybody got that written down? Sin as an act, and the sins, the actions were dealt with on the cross. We chose to rebel against God. We, like sheep, have gone astray. We've done the wrong things, and he dealt with that on the cross. First Peter 2, 24 for he, for God, Jesus Christ, bore our sins on the cross. Titus 2.14 talks about that he was, you know, for us, he took our sins upon himself. 1 John 2.2, 2, he is the satisfactory payment not for our sins only, but for the sins of the entire world. So when you think about it, the very act of sin, sinful acts, were dealt with on the cross. That's called the judgment of the cross. And realize that he did this for every human being. And that's why we have to keep coming back to the fact that when Jesus died on the cross, he died on the cross to pay for the sins of every 
every person. And the thing that some people don't grasp is that people do not go to hell because of their sins. Why? Already paid for. Jesus paid for all sins for every human being, the judgment of all sins on the cross. Okay, does that make sense? And remember, if you have a question or comment or any, any input, be sure and just stop while we're going through the class. We can do that. The second thing is the sin as a nature. That's the bit to do wrong. Let me, let me draw something up for you. I'm just going to, we'll come back on this. But I want to draw this up. And you remember this is the, the drawing of the person. <laughs> and we have a body, we have a soul, we have a conscience, we have a flesh, okay? And we have, uh, when, as a believer, a person who believes in Jesus Christ, we have what we call the human spirit, which is the part that's been born again. And then we have the Holy Spirit who lives inside of us. Every human being, believer or unbeliever, has a flesh, a natural bent to sin. And we, we come into this world with that. We have a natural bent to do wrong. When Jesus died on the cross and, and buried and rose again, he dealt with the flesh, the bent to sin. He judged that as well. Now, he, pay, he judged all, all actions, all acts of sin. He also judged the flesh. And you say, what... What are we talking about? I want you to look in your Bibles to Romans chapter 6, okay? Romans chapter 6. And look at this. And, and, <clears throat> and when we see about this flesh, this bent to do wrong, it's sometimes called sin within us, okay? Romans chapter 6. Look at verse 5 where he's talking about the fact that when we trusted in Jesus Christ, we actually died and rose again with Christ. We died and rose again with Christ. Watch what he says. For if we've been united in the likeness of his death, and we have, certainly we shall be in the likeness of his resurrection. If we die with him, we live with him. This is the most amazing thing. When you believe in Jesus Christ as Savior, you're identified with Christ, you're connected with him, and even when he died, you died. When he was buried, you were buried. When he rose again, you rose again. In fact, he talks about that in, the, in Romans chapter 6. We just won't take the time to look at every one of those verses tonight. But look at verse 6, because this is the key. Knowing this... That our old self, the old self is called the what? What's it called? The flesh. Knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him. That means was died with him. The old flesh has supposedly died with him. So that the body of sin might be done away with. The word done away with literally means to be rendered inactive so that we should no longer be slaves to sin. God said, when you died and rose again to a new life with Christ, and you're born again as a new person, this part of you no longer has to control you. We do not have to listen to the flesh anymore. We don't have to. It's been crucified, put to death, separated in a sense. We do not have to obey the flesh. Now, can we obey the flesh? Yeah, any, we can anytime we want to. We all, I made the, the idea was what I used to say is sort of like you, you used to work for the flesh, now you don't work for the flesh, but the flesh can call you and say, I want you to do something, and you can still do it. And sometimes the flesh pulls us, and we could say, I don't have to listen to you. I don't have to, oh, I don't have to, when I'm tempted this way, I don't have to fulfill it. But we do, but we don't have to because it's been put to death. The flesh has been put to death. Look at uh, Romans chapter 6, verse 11. Even so, consider yourselves dead to what? 
dead to sin. Now, he's not talking about acts of sin. He's talking about the flesh. He, he didn't say you're dead to sins, particular actions. He said to sin. That's the, that's the, the old man, the sin within you, the flesh. And so one of the, one of the most amazing truths is that when Jesus died on the cross and we trust in him, not only did he deal with sin as actions, he dealt with sin as the natural bent to sin. We do not have to sin anymore. Now, Adam, when he taught a class, what was your class on Romans? It was 6, 7, and 8 or something like that. He really went into a lot of detail on Romans 6. Uh, in my 412 Christian Life study, we really go into a lot of details in Romans chapter 6, 7, and 8. I think Romans chapter 6 is the key to the Christian life. Because everybody says, how do, you, how do you live the Christian life? Well, when you sin, you do what? You confess it. Romans chapter 6 says, don't sin. Now, that doesn't mean we won't sin, but he's basically saying, stop letting sin reign. Don't be going back and obeying this. Well, how do we live the Christian life? We live it in the power of what? The Holy Spirit. We have the Holy Spirit. There's a battle going on. Galatians 5. For the flesh lusts against the Spirit, the Spirit against the flesh, and the flesh they're contrary one to another. There's a battle going on inside of all of us. We don't have to listen to this because on the cross, Jesus Christ dealt with it. That's why he says he, we died and rose again with him to a new life. He says when, we, when he died, we died. When he was buried, we were buried. When he rose, we rose. That's what chapter 6 is all about. So it's probably one of the most powerful truths from the Bible, and yet most people never talk about it. Most people have never even dealt with it. And if you talk to somebody and you say the cross is what gives you justification, right? You can also say the cross also gives you what? Sanctification. And most people go, what are you talking about? They never even heard that. This is the key to the Christian life. And when Jesus died on the cross, he dealt with actions, sin as an act. He dealt with sin as a nature. So it's really powerful. Our bent, our bent to, sin, to sin has been put to death, has been wrong. We still can follow the pulls. In fact, uh, I do all the time, you know. I mean, I don't want to tell you that, but I sin all the time. How many of y'all, anybody in here sin all the time? Uh, some of the time? Maybe once last year? Okay. Yes. Okay. When the bent to sin, let's say you listen to it. Okay, you listen to the flesh. Yeah. Would your conscience be telling you that this is wrong? Or are there people who can ignore it and say, no, that's not wrong? Okay, Here, you're right. In a, in a person, let's start with, let's just say believer. When you're tempted, temptation is not sin. So when you're tempted to do something wrong, that doesn't mean you've done wrong. When you follow through with that temptation, do wrong. You have a conscience which tells us right from wrong. We know that. Romans says that the conscience is actually the law written in our hearts. It's the rights and wrongs from God. That The conscience came right after the fall. God told Adam and Eve, now that you know right from wrong, do right. So we have a conscience. You also have the Holy Spirit who illuminates the Scripture, who teaches you, who helps you understand. So as a believer, when we're tempted, not only does our conscience tell us this is wrong, but the Holy Spirit in the Word of God that's in our minds. That's why he says, uh, Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not what? Sin against you. Because the more you put the Word of God in your mind, the less possibility you're going to sin. Now, what can happen, especially on a conscience, you can sear your conscience, which means you can do something wrong 
long enough that it doesn't bother you anymore. And that can be for both a believer and an unbeliever. There are a lot of unbelievers who, first of all, they don't have the, the, they're not born again and they don't have the Holy Spirit. All they really have is the flesh and the conscience may be telling them, don't do that. But after a while, if you do something long enough, your conscience gets seared, as they call it, and you don't have to listen to it anymore. As believers, we can do the same thing. But it's a little bit Harder for us in one sense because we've got a conscience. We've also got the Holy Spirit. We've got the Word of God. We're born again as a new creation in Christ. And we we can have victory right here because Jesus took care of that on the cross. He died and rose again, and so it's been put to death, so to speak. Now, that doesn't mean it's gone. It just means we don't have to obey it. Does that help a little bit? Okay, anything else? Yeah, Kevin. Does what? Yeah, well, I think imputed sin is the is the is the sin. Yeah, that that's well. We always say that there's imputed sin, inherent sin, which is the nature, and then the the personal sins. So everybody comes in the world with Adam's sin in their account, and then we have the nature to sin, and then we do personal sins. So, but but this, I think Romans six is not dealing with imputed sin. I didn't put it as judgment, but when Jesus Christ died on the cross, the sins of all people goes back to the actions here. The imputed sins of all people, the sins of all people, including the imputed sin of Adam, was placed on Christ. That was the doctrine of imputation that we got back probably, I think, was it first semester when we looked at those lessons. So you're exactly right. It, it would be part of the judgment in the in sin is an act because the imputed sin of Adam was an action, an act. This is dealing with the nature. That that help? Okay, good. Yeah, yeah. I didn't I didn't put that in there. I didn't mention it, but just that any act that that's ever been done, past, present, and future of every human being, that would include Adam, that was placed with Christ on the cross. So all of those have been judged and dealt with. Okay, that takes us to the third thing. Well, you don't have to yield to the flesh. It's been judged. When it says rendered powerless, that, that doesn't mean that the flesh doesn't pull you and all that. It just means you don't have to obey it anymore. You don't have to. Uh, I mean, let's just face it. If we, if we really lived in the power of the Holy Spirit, this is going to sound bad. If we lived in the power of the Holy Spirit, would we sin? No, not really. We wouldn't. But we don't, I mean, we don't, and the pulls come, and we, we fall. The third part of this is who was judged? Who was judged on the cross? And it is Satan himself. Satan was judged in John chapter 12, verse 31. He says the rule of the world will be cast out. He goes down in John 16, 11, and says the ruler has been judged. And if you look at Colossians chapter 2, verses 14 and 15, this is the victory on the cross where, the, where the, the, all of the sins of mankind were nailed, and Satan sees it, he was judged, and he lost. And, and that's where Satan has been removed in the sense of his power. He's still the prince of the power of the air, but he's, he's lost. And if you, really, if you really look at the Scripture, and Satan knows the Scripture, it, he, he quotes it, and he quotes it sometimes wrong on purpose to trick people, but he knows he lost. You know, we've said over and over, what is Satan's plan for the unbeliever? That they would never what? 
they would never trust in Christ. It doesn't matter how religious. In fact, he would rather people be religious because religious people aren't looking for the answer. They think going to church or doing something like that, that that's going to save them. And Satan says, just keep believing that. That's fine with me. But what is his plan for the believer? What would he like for us? Not to serve and to get confused and live in the flesh and be failing all the time and be discouraged all the time and not serving God. That's what he wants for us. So, but he's already judged. He's already lost. He's already defeated. And it's just a matter of time. And we already know what's going to happen. So that, that's, some, that's some really good stuff. So when we talk about, uh, and here's, here's the great thing here. The triumph, it's finished. Watch this. Sin is paid for. The sin nature, the flesh, is crucified. And Satan is defeated. So I, I love that, and I think that's really, really powerful when you look at it. I'm going to erase this. If everybody got it, this is so perfect and, you know, what great handiwork, but I know that most everybody's got that. Or we've seen it a lot of times, so we know it. Let me go back to this. is the great white throne judgment that's number five here's judgment that's number four here's number three okay so here's where we are we just finished and we spent all this time which is good on this first one the judgment of the cross is the judgment basically of 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 sin as an act of sin as the nature jesus christ took the sin of mankind on himself why would he do it because he loved us and because we're sinful and who who lost the Satan, Satan was judged. So we're glad Jesus came. We're glad Jesus died on the cross, paid for sin, and rose again because it took care of all of those issues. So any questions or anything before we look at the next one? The next one gets real, real practical and personal, and that is judgment of the Christian life. And when we say judgment of the Christian life, that means as we go through the Christian life, we have to judge ourselves. It's First Corinthians talks about it. let him be and examine his life, let him judge himself. We, we, we go through our lives and we're to look at our lives and if we have sin in our lives, what are we supposed to do? We're supposed to confess them and that's the bottom line. Now the goal is to not, not sin, but the bottom line is we all sin and come short of the glory of God. And so we're going to see that we're supposed to discern and examine sin in our lives, and that's what we do. And so the bottom line is when we sin, what do we do? We confess it. I want to remind you of this great truth just, just because we, we're in such a, a powerful part. When we go through life, and the moment we realize we sin, because you, you can sin and not even think about it, right? And then maybe a little bit later you go, you know, I, I did that. or I, I did. What, what should we do then? Immediately, the moment you recognize there's any sin in your life, Confess it. Now, a lot of people say that confessing sin means like telling, uh, to uh, feel sorry for sin. You can feel sorry for sin and you can ask for forgiveness, but the Bible actually says when you confess sin, he's faithful and just to forgive you. Confess means to tell on yourself. And he says, if we confess our sins, if we tell on ourselves, which means we say, I lied, I lusted, I, I stole. I did. You admit what your sin is. You kept telling yourself. It says, if we confess our sins, he is what? Faithful and just to forgive us. So we don't even have to say, please forgive me. He's already says, if you confess, if you tell on yourself, I will forgive you and then cleanse you from what? All unrighteousness. The greatest thing that God does is that when we confess sin that we know about, he cleanses us from any sins 
that we might not even remember or know about. He puts us back into fellowship. Let me draw this just so you can see this. This right here is like being in in a relationship with God. This is this is being a believer, and inside here is fellowship. As a believer, we can get out of fellowship. We can never get out of the family of God. This is the family of God. We're saved, and we never can lose it. We're saved and saved forever. But when we sin, we get out of fellowship. What are we supposed to do? Confess our sin, get back in the fellowship. The goal is to stay in fellowship as much as we possibly can. And so we are to examine our lives. Now, here's kind of the question that comes up some, is we deal with sin and confess to be forgiven and cleansed. Okay, that's the key. But what, and and to get back in the fellowship with God, but what if we don't judge ourselves? What happens? Do what? God, God will, and God will judge sin in our lives. God will discipline us. Hebrews 12 says, For whom the Lord loves, he does what? Chastens and scourges every child he receives. Now, the, that passage uh, is a really hard passage because it says, For whom the Lord loves, he chastens, which actually means to train like an athlete. He disciplines you, and then he scourges, which means to take your hide off. It's like your grandmama got the switch and was just wearing you out, right? Uh, I, I got switched a few times when I was a little boy. I don't know if they do do that nowadays because people say, don't, don't whip them. I say, whip them. Whip them good. But no, that's not on tape. I did not say whip children, okay? I, I did not say whip children. But anyway, so this is, if we don't judge ourselves, our Heavenly Father will discipline us. And, and, and let me just say this. I've had people say, well, okay, so I do something wrong. And if I don't confess it, he's going to probably discipline me. I said, probably, yeah. But what if I do confess it? Will he might discipline me? He might. But what, would you rather be disciplined in fellowship with God or disciplined out of fellowship with God? You always want to be disciplined in fellowship with God. Okay, any questions about this one? That, that's basically dealing with Christian lives. And 1 Corinthians 11 and Hebrews 12 both say that God will discipline his children. And, and you remember in Corinth, okay, in First Corinthians, Paul writes to the church at Corinth, what were they doing wrong dealing with the Lord's Supper? They, they were getting drunk at the Lord's Supper. They were eating and they were leaving people out and they were, they were doing all kinds of things. And Paul says, because of this, some of you are weak, some of you are sick, and some of you sleep. That means they died. He said that because they were openly in rebellion against God and continuing in a state of sin, some of them were sick, some of them didn't feel good, and some of them actually died. If you read Psalm 51 and Psalm 32 where David writes about the fact that he had the sin with Bathsheba and he didn't deal with it, and it went for a pretty good time. The, the God judged David. And David writes and even says that his bones hurt and he felt sick and he felt the weight. And all. He, he, it was like he, God was disciplining David until he dealt with it. And so read Psalm 51 and Psalm 32. That that'll, that'll helps us all. That, that's really good. Okay, any, any questions about number two? And that's where we are here. That's as we go through the Christian life. Okay, now we're going to get to the, the number three, which is called the judgment seat of Christ. Now, when you hear the word judgment, we all think immediately, as we've said already, he judged sin, so whoo, that was something. And then we judge stuff in our... Well, the judgment seat of Christ is really the Greek word is bema, B-E-M-A, and it means the rewarding stand. 
And so this judgment, the judgment, and go ahead and turn to 2 Corinthians, okay? We're in first, uh, Romans, 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians chapter 5. And I want you to turn there, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, and we're going to talk about the judgment seat of Christ. Now, when does that take place? Many, many people believe that when Jesus raptures us out as a church and we stand before him before he comes back as the king, that's when there's the judgment seat of Christ. That's the rewarding stand. That's when believers get rewards. Now, let me just stop for a second and say this. Many people have never even understood the reward thing. There's so many Christians or there's so many people who teach that salvation is the reward, that you live a good life and you get rewarded by getting to go to heaven. Salvation is a gift. It's not, it's not rewarded. We don't do anything for it. We take the gift of eternal life. Now, as we serve and live for God, when we stand before him, we'll get rewards. We want to hear him say what? Well done, good and faithful servant. So there is an aspect of rewards, and there is an aspect of lifestyle. It has nothing to do with salvation. It has to do with rewards, and that's why it's called the judgment seat of Christ or the bema seat or the rewarding stand of Christ. That's what it really boils down to. Notice 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10 says, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. So we'll stop right there and I'll come back. But let's talk about it for just a second. We, we, this is for believers, and, and it deals with rewards. And the word bema means the reward stand. That's what we're talking about. And it, it's, a, it's a fantastic thing. Now, isn't it amazing that God would give you eternal life as a gift... He would then give you spiritual gifts. He would then give you the power of the Holy Spirit. He would then put you around other people, and he would allow you to serve him because he gave you the gifts, and he gave you the power, and then he rewards you for serving him. That's amazing. Now, what do, most, what do many believers do? First of all, they don't know what their gifts are. They don't live necessarily in the power of the Holy Spirit, and they don't serve Him. And one day when they stand before Jesus Christ, what are they going to hear? It won't be what? It won't be well done. And this has nothing to do with salvation, but it has to do with places of service and reward. So let's look at this. When we look at it, there are three aspects of this. And let me just go, number one, we're all accountable. Number two, and you can write that down, the three aspects. We're accountable to God. The results will be rewards. And the basis is our good works. That's those first three, and then we're going to get the details underneath them. So this is for every one of us in this room. We know we have trusted in Jesus Christ. We have eternal life. And so we're saved and saved forever. Our lifestyle has nothing to do with salvation. This is what is very important because there's so many people either front-loading the so-called gospel message and saying you have to do good things to be saved or back-loading the gospel saying if you don't do good works, it proves you weren't saved. Both are wrong. Good works have nothing to do with your salvation. This, this aspect now is dealing with our rewards when we stand before our Savior, Jesus Christ. So the first thing that we want to see is that we are all accountable. Romans 14.10 says, As I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow and every tongue shall give praise to God. Therefore, each one of us will give an account of ourselves to God. Second Corinthians, kind of given the, the little background in verse 9, he says, We have as our ambition... 
whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to God. We want to please Him. For, why? Why do we want to please Him? For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one of us may be recompensed for the deeds done in His body, according to what He has done, whether good or, and the word bad there actually means worthless. So what, 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 are, we, what are we going to do? So the first thing is we are all accountable. We all stand before Jesus Christ. And I don't think it's not a group stand. It's not me and Adam and a couple of others standing there saying, I hope he says some good things. No, it's just you. It's just you. And it's just me. And we're going to stand before him. And I'm hoping for all of us, expecting me, me, I'm thinking me, I hope it's, it's like, good job. That's what we want. Isn't that what we want to hear him say? You took the gifts I gave you. You took the talents I gave you. You took the time I gave you. You took the life I gave you. You took the possessions I gave you. You took all these things, and you used them for my glory. That's what we want to hear him say, right? That's right. That's for all of us. And there are going to be some people, and I don't mean it to say it, but they're going to stand there, and he's going to say, just like those parables of the talents, the guy got ten, did ten, you know, guy got five, did five more, guy got something, the guy got one and went and hit it. That's a picture of a person who's a believer who doesn't use their gifts and talents, who doesn't serve God, who doesn't grow, who doesn't make an impact for Christ. And when they stand before him, as the Bible says in 1 John, we're going to be ashamed at his coming. Not, it has nothing to do with salvation. It has to do with rewards. We will all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. It's, it's, it's amazing. Romans 14.10. And then we will alone, well, we alone will stand before Christ. We will give an account of our lives. Now, this is how, now, now here's what I want to make sure you understand. You're not standing before God and he's saying, you remember when you lied in the fourth grade? Remember when you lied on your income tax? When you stand before God, is he going to bring up any of our sins? Where are our sins? They're on Christ. When you stand before Jesus, it's not going to be about doing wrong. It's going to be, did you serve him? Did you live for him? It has nothing to do with sin. The second thing is the results, you're going to be recompensed. Notice what it says. We all stood here before the judgment seat of Christ that each one of us may be recompensed. The word recompense means to be given back. He's going to reward you. He's going to give us something back. It's, it's almost, almost beyond comprehension that he would do that. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, he uses this analogy and he says, it's going to be tested by fire. You either have gold, silver, and precious stone or wood, hay, and straw, and fire's going to set to it, and whatever's left over, you get rewarded. If you do things, we might say, in the power of the Holy Spirit for the glory of God, that's gold, silver, and precious stones. If you do things that are not for the glory of God and you just go through life, that's wood, hay, and, and uh, straw, and that'll be gone. And when you stand before Christ, you want to have stuff there, and he'll go, well done. That's kind of the analogy. The third aspect of it is the basis for all this is our deeds. Notice the passage. We'll all stand before the judgment seat of Christ that each one may be recompensed, given back for the deeds in the body. The word deeds means works, the, the good things. According to what he's done with the good, the word good means good things that we did the right way, or bad, and the word bad means worthless. It's the word for, it's like rotten fruit. I have to tell the story. One time when I was a single guy, I was a single guy for a long time, not just one time, but I was single for a long time. And I remember going, I, 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 I don't know, I don't buy groceries, I don't cook and all that. But somehow I got some bananas. I don't know why I got bananas. And I put them up in a cabinet. In, and, you know, and then I'm coaching. I'm in Mississippi State and I'm doing all that. And one day I'm going home and I go, something smells terrible in here, you know. And I opened up the cabinet and there was like, 
a blob of what used to be some bananas, you know? And what the, that's the word here that's like worthless. It's like worthless fruit. It's like things that, that don't mean anything. It's like they, they're just worthless. And that's, that's what uh, things that are done not in the power of the Holy Spirit and that things that are not done in our giftedness when we don't serve him. And he, and he says, it, you can, it, the things done for the glory of God, you will get rewarded for that. And so it's some powerful, powerful truths. Okay, questions? This is big for us because a lot of people don't ever understand about rewards. In fact, let me just throw this out just because we got some time. Uh, some people think rewards are, are uh, selfish. Like, oh, so you're going to serve God so he'll reward you. Well, the reason we do that is because in 1 Corinthians 9, that's exactly what he told us to do. He said, I want you to run the race so you get the reward. I want you to live in such a way that you won't be disqualified, that you'll get rewards, and when you stand before me, you'll hear me say, well done, good and faithful servant. He wants you to get rewards. He wants you to serve him with the idea of saying, I want to serve my Savior, so when I stand before him, he says, good job. That is not selfish. It's what we should be doing. Okay. So with that now, here's the judgment of the nations. Now, this is a little bit harder, but after we are all up there, there's seven years on the earth, the tribulation, and then Jesus comes back to set up the kingdom. When he comes back to set up the kingdom, there's a judgment coming, and this judgment of the nations deals with both believers and unbelievers, okay? And it's found in Matthew 25, but I want you to add a second coming, and there's going to be a part where the believers, when he comes back, there's a judgment, and those people who have believed during the tribulation, they get to go into the kingdom. The people who are still alive, and they, uh, they're unbelievers, they're going to be separated from God, and they're going to go into what we call the heart of the earth, okay? Sometimes it's called Sheol, sometimes it's called Hades, and then they're going to be separated, the sheep from the goats. Uh, turn to, to uh, if you want to, just real quickly, turn to Matthew 25. I just want you to see this, just so you can see how it fits together. Matthew 25, uh, 31, if you just look, uh, is anybody there? Most people there. Matthew 25, 31 says, And when the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with Him, He will sit on His glorious throne. Here He comes to the earth to sit on His glorious throne. Here's what it says. It says, And all the nations will be gathered before Him, and He will separate them one another as the shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. Now, by the way, these are nations. Israel is not considered one of the nations. The word nations there is the word Gentiles, ethnos. The Jews, and this is basically a judgment on how these people, whether they're believers or not, how they, well, if, how they treated the nation of Israel. We're going to find that believers treated the nation of Israel in the tribulation well. Unbelievers did not tri uh, treat the nation of Israel well. The unbelievers are called goats, and the believers are called sheep. It says, when the king comes, it said, verse 33, uh, he will put the sheep on the right and the goats on the left. And so what's going to happen is there's going to be a separation, and the sheep of the believers there on the right, the goats of the unbelievers, and they're on the left, and they're going to be separated. Look at verse 34. The king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom. That's rewards, by the way. Prepared from you from the foundation of the world. They get to go into the kingdom and have rewards. And then if you look further down, to verse 41, and he will say to those on his left, that's the goats, depart from me, accursed ones, in the eternal fire which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. The best that we can understand is 
this judgment is based on how they dealt with the nation of Israel during the tribulation. And what we find out is the believers, of course, the ones who who trust in the Messiah and the Savior are going to do everything they can to help Israel. The unbelievers who reject him are not going to help them. And so that's the the division there of the sheep and the goats. I think, yeah, there's the division. Uh, the sheep are the believers, the goats of the unbelievers. Now, there's some hard passages in there because he says, you did, you did this and you didn't do this. And I think what he's really saying is, as a believer, you did the things for Israel. As the unbeliever, you didn't do the things for the nation of Israel. So anyway, you could study that passage. Any questions or comments or anything about that passage? Is Israel in this say, say that again. Is Israel included in this judgment? Or no, I, th- I, think, I think this judgment is for nations. Notice it says, and he will gather before him, all the nations will be gathered before him. I think the nation of Israel is not considered the, the Gentile aspect of it. The nation of Israel is the one that has gone through their final seven years. And I think this judgment is on how they dealt with the nation of Israel. And, and what you find is the believers support the nation of Israel and the unbelievers don't support the nation of Israel. In fact... You almost see that same thing today in a lot of places where who is for the nation of Israel now? Who supports Israel now? Well, most of the church, most, well, people who actually hold to a historical, lateral, you know, literal grammatical interpretation are always going to be supporting Israel. And then we go back to the, the covenant. What is the covenant? I will bless those that bless you and I will curse those that curse you. So I think that's what happens here. And he blesses the ones that bless them who believed and they go into the kingdom. They're the sheep and the unbelievers who actually were against them. Um, they they go into, they, this passage just gives the final judgment that they go, but we know they go into the death in Hades. We'll see that in just a second. So any other, any questions? Yeah, yeah. All, all we we don't know for sure. We know this. According to Daniel chapter 12, verse 2, the, the church, first of all, the church is raptured here, and the church gets their rewards. The nation of Israel, the believing Jews, not the church age, because there's Jews and Gentiles in the church age, but believing Jews are raised from the dead here, Daniel 12, 2. And that's when they're, best we can tell, that's when we're rewarded. So I think, it doesn't really say, but I think the Jewish believers who make it through the tribulation are rewarded here with the other Jewish believers who are raised from the dead. I think it all, that's probably, it's probably before the marriage supper of the Lamb because their rewards have a bearing on who gets to go to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Yeah, so good, good, great question, really. That's really good. That, that makes sense. Okay. That's what he says to him. Okay, now we're to the last one. And this is called the Great White Throne Judgment. Let me catch up to my notes to make sure I know where we are. The Great White Throne Judgment. Let me tell you what most people, when they hear in the Bible, Great White Throne Judgment, here's their belief. Their belief is that God will sit on a giant throne and every human being will stand before him. And there will be a judgment to decide whether they go to hell or heaven. And I believe, you know, I trusted Christ when I was 19, but I, I went to church once when I was 6 and once when I was 12. And if you ask me, how does a person go to heaven? I would have said then, you go to heaven by trying to be good because you're going to stand before God. And if you have more good than bad, you get to go to heaven. I thought 
like this big judgment. Well, the judgment seat of Christ is going to be really for believers and unbelievers. We'll see how that fits together. Primarily, most people say primarily the judgment seat, the great white throne judgment is for the unbeliever. If you want to turn to Revelation chapter 20, this is at the very end, and this is what we see is called the, the great white throne judgment. And we're going to see what God does. It's at the end. Of, of basically before God sets up what we call the eternal state. There is a thousand-year reign of Christ on the earth and then the great white throne judgment. Most people, and I used to teach always that the only people standing at the great white throne judgment were unbelievers. But it does say, if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, which maybe implies that there might have been somebody whose names are written in the book of life. So I think maybe some people who are born during the thousand years, who trust Christ during the thousand years, maybe that's when they get certain rewards. I, do, I just don't know. It doesn't say. The Bible doesn't give us information. And when we don't have information, all we can do is say, well, we don't really know, and, and maybe this or maybe that. We don't know. Revelation chapter 20, verse 14, oh, excuse me, verse 11. Then I saw a great white throne, and him who sat on it, from whose presence earth and heaven fled away, there was no place found for them. I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne, and the books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged from the things written in the books according to their deeds. Now, here's what we must understand as we look at this. At the end of the millennium, the unbelievers are standing there, and the basis for their judgment is their deeds. Now, notice this. There are books open. I don't... There are books open. There are books that have their deeds in them, their works, not their sins. And then there's a book which is the book of life. When you believe in Jesus Christ, you're, you're found where? Where do you get put? The book of life. So the book of life is believers. What the best we can understand is it says, death and Hades gave up their dead. These people are being judged according to their deeds. It goes on and says in verse 13, the sea gave up their dead. Death and Hades gave up their dead. And they were each one judged according to their deeds. Now, this is not, this is not sin. So people are not standing before God. And he says, you're a sinner and you've done wrong. Why? Because Jesus has already taken every sin. They're standing before him, and what I think is their names are not found written in the book of life. We'll talk about that. I think he's showing them that all the things they think they did that might be good do not measure up. It would be like if I stood before God before I ever trusted Christ, and he said, let's open the books, and they'd say, did, did, oh, good, 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 good. I go, I did good. I did real good. And he went, yeah, but it doesn't get it you in the book of life. And I think there's going to be some people who will stand before Jesus Christ and they're going to say, as it says over in that other place, did we not cast out demons in your name? Did we not do this? Did we not do this? Did we not live a good life? And he says, I never what? I never knew you. Because good deeds have nothing to do with salvation. Salvation is a gift. All of us know people who go to church Try to live a good life. Try to keep the Ten Commandments. Uh, get baptized. Try, try to do the right things. And they think by doing all those things, somehow they're going to get to God. 
And the way to God is what? Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life, and no man comes to the Father except through me. It's through Jesus. He's the Savior. We're not the Savior. Our good works do not save us. It's not by works of righteousness we've done, but according to his mercy, he saves us. By grace, we've been saved through faith and not of ourselves. It's the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. And so I think that the unbelievers who are standing before him and they're judged according to their works, and I think, of course, they don't measure up. And it goes on to say, death in, it says, death and Hades were thrown in the lake of fire. This is the second death. If anyone's name was not found written, verse 15, if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. And so death and Hades are cast in the lake of fire. Anyone's name not in the book of life. That implies that maybe at the great white throne judgment, there might be some people who are in the book of life. And it could be people who are born during the thousand years and, and, and they believed in him. And this is when they get some kind of reward. Or maybe their name is, you know, in the book of life. And he says, okay, you're in the book of life. You go into what we call the eternal state, the new heavens and the new earth. Now, this is, it's kind of complicated. And, of course, the judgments are that, you know, there's a lot of stuff in the Bible about them. Uh, so, summary. There's the judgment of the cross. Well, let me, let me stop before I go on. Let me go back for just a second. Did anybody have any questions on the great white throne judgment? Anything? Yes. What's the C referring to? The what? The C referring to. What verse? Okay, all right. Here's the only thing we can find is you know that there's a place that sounds, if, if you've never heard this before, it's going to sound weird, but there's a place in the heart of the earth that in the Old Testament is called Sheol, the New Testament is called Hades. There's a place in the heart of the earth. And unbelievers, when they die, go into the heart of the earth and they'll be raised. And that's why he says, and death and Hades gave up their dead. When he says the sea gave up their dead, I think he's saying, <coughs> saying that even people who died and they were in the sea, they, they are all raised. In other words, all these people are raised. Here's something most people don't grasp. Every human being is going to exist forever. Jesus died on the cross to do what? Pay for the sins of who? Every human being. He rose from the grave to conquer death for who? Every human being. Every human being will be raised from the dead. Some will be raised from the dead to live eternally with Jesus Christ. That's called eternal life. That's by faith. Others will be raised from the dead to spend eternity separated from Jesus Christ. It's called the second death. And so death, Hades, sea, everything, every, all unbelievers will be raised to stand before Jesus Christ. And if their name is not found written in the book of life, they're cast into the lake of fire. So it's huge, huge issues. And so when we think about it, you know, we go, you mean so every human being, I used to say everybody's going to live forever, but that's wrong. Because they're going to what? Die forever. Because it's called the second death. Living forever is eternal life with Jesus Christ. Dying forever is the second death into the lake of fire separated from Christ. So I quit saying everybody's going to live forever. He died and rose again conquering death for every person. But every person won't live forever. They will die forever being separated from Christ. Okay, anything else? Okay, then so here's kind of the summary. We have the judgment of the cross in which Jesus died on the cross to take care of the sin debt. He, take, he paid for sin as an act, sin as a, as a, as a nature. He, Satan was judged and all of that. Then there's the judgment of sin in believers' life. That's where we confess our sins. Uh, you already have a lot of this. We have the judgment seat of Christ in which we'll be rewarded. There's the judgment of nations. And I think this is how, the, how did they deal with the nation of Israel. And then last. 
says the great white throne judgment. So that's I, what I consider the five judgments. There may be some other things that you want to look at or put in that category. Uh, the key verse that for you to memorize uh, for next time is Romans 14, 11 and 12. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me. Every tongue shall give praise to God. So then each one of us will give an account of himself to God. Believers will stand before Jesus Christ to give an account of our deeds as a believer. Unbelievers will stand before God and give an account of their deeds as an unbeliever. Believers' deeds result in works. I mean, result in rewards. Unbelievers' deeds result basically in nothing because uh, their names are not found written in the book of life.